Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is a leading behavioral science podcast with listeners in more than 120 countries. We bring behavioral science to a broader community and hope you find something wonderful to take away from every episode. That's true, Tim. We hope that every time you check out a Behavioral Grooves episode, you learn something new or hear something that reminds you of something that's important. Or maybe you just laugh a little bit with us. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. (laughs) We record these conversations with researchers, authors, and practitioners so that their work and their ideas about the applications of behavioral science can improve your work and your life. Yeah, so before we get to this episode, we just want to quickly remind you that Kurt and I, along with a great group of colleagues, are hosting Nudge It North, a global conference featuring a terrific roster of researchers, authors, and practitioners that you won't want to miss. Our keynote speakers include Annie Duke, Gary Latham, and John Barg, and the renowned Robert Cialdini. And he will share his secrets on persuasion that every sales, marketing, UX, CX, HR, and healthcare leader will want to hear. That's a lot of two-letter acronyms there, Kurt. (laughs) That's because there's a lot of people who could start the new year off right and benefit from signing up. And when you sign up for Nudge It North, make sure you use the code GROOVES to get an extra 15% off your ticket price. Sweet. Now, this conference features intimate exchanges with our terrific roster of speakers, and we'll have lots of opportunities to exchange ideas with our speakers and with each other. We know how important it is to network and learn and grow, both professionally and personally, and that is even more vital during a pandemic. So head straight out to nudgeitnorth.com and get one of the tickets while they're still available. Wait, 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 Tim, Tim, wait. There is no no limit on the number of tickets. We're, we're not going to run out of tickets, people. Oh, sorry. I, I guess I was thinking about concerts, you know, like. <laughs> Back when I was having, when I was actually performing, uh, I guess it's not the same thing. No, no, it's not the same <laughs> okay. thing at all. I think you're having some pandemic fatigue here, right? <laughs> all right. Okay, so we, we we do want everyone to join us for Nudge It North. We will be running out of the early bird pricing, so you should jump on and grab your tickets before the prices go up. Maybe that's what you were meaning to. Oh, oh yeah, okay, that that's definitely it. But we should probably turn to this episode. At this oh, point, right? all right, I guess we should. So 2020 has been one hell of a year, and we are glad to see it come to an end. But before it does, Tim and I wanted to share some thoughts we had, as well as the thoughts of our guests and what they said during this, what can only be said to be a really particularly unique and amazing year. Boy, isn't that the truth. Uh, Okay, so our objective is to share a few planks from the amazing raft of ideas that we floated on during our conversation with guests in 2020. I'm just putting it a little slightly more poetic. Planks that we've we floated on these rafts. Nice. I like that, Tim. Okay. So let's get going with the review of this remarkable and unprecedented year for Behavioral Grooves, our guests, and hopefully for you, our listeners, as well. Okay. So maybe, how about if we start with some, sort of some general stats? All right. About, so what what kind of general stats are you talking about here? You know, there's a uh, 355 days, 65 days in a year. God, I can't even get my days of the year right. Feels <laughs> like they're 2,000 years. This has been, you know, what, what the stat that I want to talk about 
here's the stat I want to talk about. You know, if, if it gets, if this 2020 gets called unprecedented one more time, I, I, I think I will start throwing punches. All right. Is that a stat that we want to talk about? Uh, no, but that's a good. It's, I don't know if we need to groove on that, but that's, uh, it's, a, it's a good one. That's for sure. How many episodes did we do? Oh, I, I think you did all the math. And so if we believe that, which <laughs> I don't have any doubt that you did the math wrong, we have 90 episodes this year, starting with uh, Rory at one at episode 107 and end, ending with Max Bazerman, which will be out in a couple weeks, uh, yeah. at either 196 or 197. So it could be 90 or 89 episodes this yeah. year, depending on how good we get but that's that's 72 unique guests that we've we've talked to this year that is amazing that is yeah. amazing and and we've had a steady increase in download year over year pretty much month over month and november was the best month we've ever had um yeah. from, from a download perspective so again thank you to all our listeners out there and then, you know, when the pandemic broke and we went into quarantine in March, you know, we decided to do something different. We weren't sure what was going to happen. Obviously, nobody really knew what was going to happen. I don't know if we still know what's going to happen. <laughs> I was going to say, right. But, but we decided know. to do a special session um, or sessions on coronavirus and how behavioral science could shed light on how we behaved and responded to this unprecedented uh element that was going on punches. <laughs> and we ended up doing over 30 episodes specifically on the pandemic coronavirus etc and we had a lot of great insights yeah would it be okay if we also mentioned that chartable put us in the top 20 for global social science podcasts this year that was a pretty cool thing that happened. Yeah, uh, and, and we got voted to the number one behavioral science podcast by listeners of Habit Weekly, you know, yeah. thousands of votes. So that's pretty cool, too, you know? That's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. I don't know. I, I you didn't you didn't like bribe anybody for that, did you? Because you know, I, I, I okay. I, I don't have any clout. <laughs> I don't have any money. So um, there you go. I don't know if I could do it. Anyway, uh, for this this episode, we're going to take a look back at uh, and talking with some of our guests and what they said and some of the insights that we had. And we're going to actually take those 30 episodes that we had from the coronavirus and we're going to separate that out. We'll do a whole special retrospective on that uh, because I think it is an unprecedented year. And I think we need to really address that as its own separate entity. And I think there's some learnings and some learnings that we can take forward from that that are unique. But without uh, without those 30, we still have 60-some episodes that we are going to be able to pull from. And obviously, we can't touch on all of them and all of the great guests that we had. Uh, but we'll, we'll pull on a few that we thought were really kind of important and and ones that we we loved and just go from there does that sound good yeah so this episode is going to be about some of our favorite guests from the non-covid series basically right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay mm 
Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Okay. So let let's maybe let's just uh, tick off a bunch of some of the wonderful ideas that we spoke to that uh, that uh, that we got from from our guests, and we'll actually bring in some of the words that they had to say specifically. How about yeah, that? That sounds fantastic. So so where do we begin? What do you think? Wow. It's got to start with Annie Duke. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. Why would we not start with our favorite Annie Duke? Oh. So Annie uh, came on the show uh, to talk about her new book, How to Decide, uh, in which she shared a number of great tips that we can apply to our everyday lives to make better decisions. It was interesting because we had been talking with Annie for a while uh, as she was writing this book and getting some early drafts and giving some feedback, which we thought was kind of useless, but Annie somehow felt it was, it was good. Um, and, and she has been a wonderful, wonderful person and friend to behavioral groups for a long time now. But one of the things that we learned uh, in this conversation and in her new book that she talks about is this concept about t- making educated guesses and that we do that all the time. And this concept that she calls the archer's mindset. So let's listen to what she says about that. And Annie's episode was number 176. More you can define the target area. In other words, the smaller you can make that target area, the better off you're going to be in terms of your ability to make really good decisions about whatever it is that you're trying to decide about. This is the archer's mindset. It's just not ever accepting that something's a guess. It's saying, look, I can get on the target. I can get on the target because I'm not playing pin the tail on the donkey, right? I'm not just walking around with a blindfold on, just like stabbing pins into the world. That's not how we make decisions, right? I want to be like an archer. So I have to force myself to think about my guesses as educated guesses. And then what that does is essentially what I just did with the Drake question. Okay, so the takeaway from this conversation with uh, with Annie is really about being purposeful, right? It's about being purposeful in the way that we make decisions. And the archer's mindset is a really wonderful way of helping us guide our thinking as opposed to just focusing on that damn bullseye. It's about getting a broader perspective. It's that we we tend to get caught up in trying to hit the bullseye too often and the archer's mindset helps us expand our thinking so that we can hit the target more consistently, not always, because we're not always going to hit the bullseye, but the archer's mindset helps us with orient our thinking around that. Right, Kurt? Yep. I think that's absolutely true. And that leads us to the discussion about Max Bazerman. So Max is is a yet to be published episode, but we talked to him about his new book, Better, Not Perfect. And in that book, Max explores ethics and the application of a particular moral and ethical values to the world in a way that gets us thinking about not trying to create a perfect world or create a perfect life, but just to be incrementally better. Let's listen to what Max has to say about how to keep people interested in just doing a little bit better. And just to let you know, Max's episode is not yet published. In the book, uh, I use the term maximal sustainable goodness because I think that if we um, push people beyond a certain level to do good, it just won't become sustainable. So Mm -hmm. far better to encourage people to be better in a way that they actually enjoy being better and want to continue on constant improvement in their life. So the takeaway here is about incremental improvements. 
you know, as Annie mentioned, we're always taking educated guesses, but we need to improve those on a regular basis. And that's what I think Max is really getting at, is how do we continually improve how we're thinking and making sure that we're getting better and that it isn't always about being perfect, but it is about getting better each and every day. And granted, he's talking large policy and various different things, but we can take that as a personal mantra and say, look, how am I better today than I was yesterday? It's actually, I have a big blackboard down in our kitchen that I put little inspirational quotes on for the kids. And that's what I have on, I've had on for the, probably the past three weeks is what are you doing today that will make tomorrow better? And I got it from our conversation with Max. Fantastic. And of course, that leads us into one of the highlights of the year for me, uh, which was we got to talk with freaking Gary Latham. Oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who, who, who has been a hero of mine forever. He was, I mean, he was in my dissertation. I, 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 I you cited him in my dissertation and he, oh, okay. had, he was, he was cited in your, he, he wasn't in your dissertation. <laughs> he was just cited. In the dissertation. I cited his research in my dissertation. There you go. Sorry. I need to be very clear about that. Yes. Um, but it was, it was fantastic to be able to talk to him. He's a luminary in the world of IO psychology and co-developer of goal setting theory. And we talked to him about about goals and how important they are. And, and we also talked to him a lot about goal priming, which has been a, a really fun conversation because he really didn't want to get into goal priming. This was a set out to disprove goal priming. Uh, and it was really an interesting uh, foray into how good scientists actually look at the data in order to determine their beliefs and their their um, ideas that they, they follow and not necessarily just following their beliefs. So um, let's listen to what he has to say. So we talked with Gary Latham in episode 147. There are three ways off the top of my head you can set a goal. It can be assigned. Mm -hmm. It can be set in a participatory manner between you and your boss or you and your team, or it can be self-set. Now, self-set goals are excellent. However, there's always howevers. <laughs> In organizational settings, self-set goals often are not as challenging or difficult for the person or team as the goal that is set in a participatory manner or a goal that is assigned. Oh, by as an aside, or I'll forget to tell you this, the nice things about participatory goals is not necessarily that goal commitment is higher, it's that the goal itself is often higher when you set a participatory goal. And going back to the theory, higher the goal, higher the performance, and that's exactly what the evidence shows. So the big takeaway from Gary's comments is that organizational leaders always are trying to set big goals. They're trying to set goals for the entire organization. And they tend to believe that just by cascading those goals down through the organization, that everybody's going to simply buy off on what they have to do. And, and the trouble is that without some kind of co-commitment or commitment device or participatory, participatory activity, not everybody in the organization is going to buy into those goals because they're not theirs until they participate in them. And Gary is so wonderfully skeptical 
that he, even in this comment, he says, and that's exactly what the evidence shows because he's all about the evidence and not just about this is what I think. It's actually what the data proves. Right. And and Tim, this was a fantastic conversation about goals and self-selected goals because you've done a lot of work on this and it kind of reinforced a lot of the work that you have done for the past 15 plus years on, on yeah. this. So yeah, was that was really guest. great. Yeah. Um, a lesser known guest, but one that ties in nicely with what Gary was saying is Ryan McShane, who spoke to us on, on the evolution of, of human resources and the power of leadership within an organization. It was a really good conversation to talk to about the importance of leadership and how leaders really can drive not just the culture, but also you know how people behave inside an organization. So let's listen to what Ryan had to say here. Ryan McShane was a guest in episode 191. You know, I come from the standpoint, Tim, that uh, leadership has the greatest influence over culture within an organization. And so to that point, the extent to which the leader is conscious um, or unconscious in terms of their own behaviors and actions, that ripples out and affects the entire culture of the organization. Um, we can look to leadership to really define the culture because it's typically the ethos or mores of the leaders at the helm that dictate what the culture of the organization will look like. So one of the big takeaways that I had from Ryan's comments was that leadership needs to embrace new ideas. It's so important for leaders to continue to be learning, right? We've heard this from so many of our guests, right? We need to keep learning. We need to keep making progress. Sometimes incremental progress is just great, but leaders need to keep learning. And, and that learning is best when it's based on science and the yes. evidence, as Gary mentioned before, and really does, and not just based on a gut feel, or this is the way that I would like to do it and having some motivated reasoning. It is really, look, let's, let's embrace new ideas that are based on the evidence, based on science, and drive our success forward. Absolutely. Okay, so one of my favorite insights came from an episode with Kira Verrazani. Uh, and Kira is actually still in Australia when we talked to her, even though she's taken a job with OECD in Paris. Uh, but her family is still stuck in Australia because of the pandemic. But we talked a lot about neuroscience. Um, of course, we also went beyond just neuroscience. We talked about how science can, in general, can show us that there are new ways of learning and changing behavior all the time right? She's, she's done a great job of influencing both of us. I think I can speak for you, Kurt, in helping us remind us that neuroscience has a very, plays a very important role in behavioral science, right? Kiera's episode was number 118. So this is what they did. Basically, um, they focused their attention on a group of people who were um, smokers, like heavy smokers. What they did is that in order to connect parts of the brain. What they did is that while these people were sleeping, they associated the, the smell of the cigarette to this, a very bad smell. And I think they chose rotten eggs. Rotten so basically, egg. oh. rotten eggs. So imagine these people were sleeping and during the sleep, they, they were exposed to two different smells at the same time, cigarettes and rotten eggs. And the, the, the results were amazing because... 
after I think two, only two sessions, okay. uh, these people really started just to dislike smoking. All right. So I think what I take away from this is that science is always progressing. We're always making inroads to deeper understandings, even from things that seem totally outlandish at, at initial thing. Like you can learn while you're sleeping. Isn't that some, you know, psychobabble stuff that people did and trying to make a buck? But no, again, looking at the evidence, looking at this from a new perspective and saying, how, what can we know? What do we know about human um, thinking and our decision-making and what can we do in order to try to change that behavior? And, and I love this idea of, Hey, let's, Let's match the smell of rotten eggs uh, to (laughs) smoking and let's do it while people are sleeping because our sense of smell bypasses a lot of our rational thinking and going right into those areas of the brain that, you know, make this revulsion. And, And so it's this wonderful application of neuroscience, behavior change all wrapped up into one. And so I think, again, we need to be flexible. We need to be looking at the evidence. We need to be learning both as researchers and also as practitioners as we move forward. And then, which kind of leads us into Roy Baumeister, who is another luminary in the field that, again, we were just so super grateful to have us join us and to talk with us. And again, the entire conversation with Roy was engaging and insightful, but this quote about the impact of our ability to predict our future emotional state has on our behavior is the one that stuck with me. And again, I think it shows that, hey, the obvious isn't always the right answer. And you have to look at the evidence, look at that data and really get this. So let's, let's hear what Roy has to say about emotion and how predicting emotion is really important. We talked to Roy Baumeister on episode 171. In fact, I'm often tempted to think that the real value of the human emotional system is not so much, doesn't so much reside in the emotions you feel in the present, but in your ability to use them in these simulations of the future. So a big takeaway for me on this, Kurt, was that for many years, uh, the the early days of behavioral science was about sort of attacking our emotions. It was about uh, saying our emotions can lead to biases and can lead to bad decision making, and and that's true. By the way, that's not yes. that's not that's not a fallacy. That's true. But Roy reminds us that emotions are really important, right? And that they are really really important when it comes to how we're going to act because we start predicting how we're going to feel in a future state. And wow, and this happens instantly. Our brains are so facile and so amazing. And I think that this is really, really a cool aspect of how our behavior happens in the present based on how we're thinking about how we'll feel in the future. Right, that is the part that just blew me away. It got me to think about things vastly differently. It's not necessarily our current emotional state that is driving our behavior. It is our predicted future emotional state that is driving our current behavior. Pow, man, (laughs) you know, again, it makes perfect sense once you start thinking about it. But 
it's it's looking at the research and, and really understanding it and taking a, a, a flexible approach to this to understand it, um, which leads us in to uh, Professor Eric Oliver, uh, professor of political science at the University of Chicago, who does a lot of work on conspiracy theories. And you got to think that conspiracy theories are people who are really flexible in looking at the world. <laughs> so flexible in fact that, that, that uh, Eric calls us, and there's an idea of magical thinking, which is what really got us into this. We read some, some of his work on magical thinking, these people who have magical beliefs and how it relates to those conspiracy theories. And I just loved Eric when he was talking about why we believe some outlandish things and it, it hit home, right? Because again, it's talking about an emotional reaction. And, and it's this emotional reaction that we have that really drives those beliefs in things that are pretty outlandish. And I thought the best story to be able to identify that was one that he said about he was putting his son to sleep. And his son is afraid of the monsters in the closet. And let's listen to him because he says it much better than I can. And if you're searching for Eric Oliver's interview, it was our episode number 172. When we have these emotions, we also draw on them as informative. And I, I, I give an example about this is uh, my son, Ethan, when he was five, I went to his bedroom. He was, you know, complaining about monsters in the closet, monsters in the closet. And we had this whole, you know, this is like 1130 night. I'm really tired. He's tired. I'm getting nowhere on this. And finally he turns to me, he said, well, you know, dad, if there's, if there are no monsters in the closet, then why am I afraid? All right. You got me. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but you know, I, I realized that's, you know, he, he basically, and I think this is when we, when we draw on our intuitions, if we're feeling apprehensive, we're actually more likely to then look and seek answers that sort of validate or rationalize our fears. So much like Roy Baumeister, Eric reminds us that emotions are important. They really play an important role in our, in our interpretation of those emotions, play an important role in our behaviors. So we are going to be dramatically influenced by how we feel. Our behaviors are going to be influenced, right? So let's pay attention to them. Let's be aware of them. Let's actually take a a proactive stance in in thinking about well, this is how I'm feeling about something. What does it actually mean? Like, let, let you know, let's actually start to to look at the emotion as an indicator of this is how I'm feeling, and and then use that in a positive way to make better decisions. Right. The, and and by the way, get away from magical thinking whenever possible. <laughs> well, it's this idea that beliefs are driven by the emo that we have to rationalize the emotions that we have we need to feel like that emotional angst or fear that we have has a reason and if i can understand what that reason is then i can control it and i can feel it this unprecedented i feel something just because i feel something doesn't bode well with our rational thinking and thus it leads to these strong beliefs and conspiracy theories and crazy talk, right? So this is, I think, a really good insight into understanding those crazy uncles or aunts that we have or cousins <laughs> or neighbors or, or high school friends. And so with that, we really need to think through how we respond and, and, and looking at that. 
which again, then, you know, we had a whole different conversation <laughs> with Bill von Hippel, who is an evolutionary psychologist. And what he's talking about is that our behavior is not only just driven by magical thinking, but it's an evolutionary way of thinking uh, that has developed over the course of a millennia because that's the way that we survived as, as humans. And so we have these built-in kind of elements of how we think and how we respond that are based on, a, on an evolutionary response. And this, I think, is, a, again, really interesting uh, when we tie this all together with what we've learned so far from some of the other guests. But let's listen to what Bill had to say about this. Make sure you check out episode 187 to listen to Bill Von Hippel. The, the key to sexual selection is, is to try to be at least as good as the people around you, right? Because it, it kind of doesn't matter how good you are. What it matters is how you stack up to those who are close around you. Because if you're if you stack up better than them, you'll get picked by somebody to be their partner. And if they stack up better than you, you won't get picked. The end result of that process is that we're constantly engaged in social comparison. We're constantly looking around to see how well we stack up to others. And our happiness is very heavily determined by this. So the big takeaway from Bill Von Hippel's comments is that everything is relative. We're constantly looking for relative advantage and in order to make us feel good, right? We want to feel good, so we're looking for competitive uh, advantage in in our in our peer set and who we're comparing ourselves to, right? If we don't, if, if I don't compare myself to George Clooney, I'll feel better because I, if I compare myself to George Clooney, I'm going to lose on pretty much every aspect of maybe other than guitar playing, which is which is why you hang out with me, right? Because you can you it's like relative. You are you are George Clooney when it's compared to me. So that's what I'm looking for. Yes. Yeah, so, it, but it's interesting this this idea that we've evolved because hey. This is social comparison and we live in these social groups and the idea that I don't have to be the best, I just have to be better than the guy next to me. And I think that sheds again some light on how the world is behaving and a variety of other factors that go into how we're dealing with a modern world with this ancient kind of hardwired right. factors that are going in, which... Again, I think is really interesting when we think about Jessica Mayhew, who is a biological anthropologist who studies primates at play, and her insights into the primate world can actually inform us how we behave in the human world. So let's listen to Jessica. Jessica Mayhew's episode was number 179. Check it out. And I think it really just sort of depends on the the adult society, right? Social society that they're living in. And so if they are um, a society that is increasingly tolerant, if they uh, find themselves sort of having these really intense adult relationships, they might continue to play. It really sort of is a species specific behavior, right? It's going to depend on their patterns of behavior as adults and whether or not they continue to play into adulthood. Okay, so this is this is so important. Love, love, love the idea of talking to Jessica about primates and how primate behavior relates to human behavior. And the big takeaway for me is that society matters. Like the world that we grow up in influences how we turn out. And maybe just uh, you know, my mantra for 
you know, my entire life now is context matters, right? The context that we grow up in, the context that we live in, the context that you and I are interacting in, the room, the the, the car that we drive, the people that we see, the television programs that we watch, the movies, all of that influences how happy we are and how and how we deal with our world. So let's change up a little bit. We're going to now bring in Amy Bucher, who is the VP of Behavior Change Design at Mad Pow and author of the new book, Engaged. And we talked to her about applying behavioral science. And we talked to her about applying behavioral science in the real world, right? And, and in design. And I thought it was really interesting when she's talking about how we can take uh, some of the concepts from behavioral science and what that means for designers. And particularly, she's talking about an aspect of relationships that we don't always think about when we're designing and, and trust in those relationships. And this is a, an episode that, again, is going to be published soon, so it is not yet out. But listen up to what Amy has to say. But I really, really feel that it's critical to um, develop trust between the product and users and then to maintain it. And it's something that's been on my mind for quite a while now, because first of all, I've worked in health for most of my career, and it's um, just such an important area for people's lives. Like your health data, it's incredibly personal, it's incredibly consequential, and if it's misused, the consequences to you could just be huge. So, so the big takeaway from Amy is not unlike the primal relationships that we have. It's not unlike the kind of evolutionary uh, relationships we have. It's that trust, which has been a part of the collaborative nature of humankind, is essential to relationships, even between a product designer and the consumer that is using it. And that, that I think, is, is something that we all too often forget, both as users and as designers, this is an opportunity for us to actually improve the way that we both design and use our products. And, and that actually moves me into something about relationships that I think is really important. We had some fantastic conversation with Eli Finkel, and that was back in episode 174. Eli uh, wrote a fantastic book about the all or nothing marriage. And, and one aspect of, of his conversation with us focused on expectations and that our expectations of marriage and relationship have changed significantly over the past few centuries. Like, you know, he actually went through the sort of the history, the chronology of the way marriage has changed, which is really interesting. Um, but also the individual expectations that we have of our partners and how it's key to making relationships a success. You can check out Eli's comments in episode 174. So let's listen to what Eli had to say. And so this logic, all of that, what I just said, sort of is a supply and demand way of thinking. It says, you're welcome to expect whatever you want. I'm not telling you you have to lower your expectations or raise your expectations, but I'm telling you that once you're bringing expectations, you you are now responsible for them, right? So if you bring certain expectations that the marriage can't fulfill, you'll be disappointed. If you bring expectations that the marriage can fulfill, you'll be better off. Okay, so the takeaway here is, we can improve our life by understanding and making sure that our expectations are realistic and that we are not letting society dictate the expectations to us, that we are going into our relationships with very clear understanding of what we want out of this and what we need out of this and taking that 
we will have a better life, which again is amazing when we think about the insights that you get from a, a, a little podcast like this, that you can improve your life by listening to our shows. Wow. I'm improving my life by listening to our shows. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm improving our life by listening to our guests, not necessarily <laughs> our shows. So I guess maybe that's maybe that's the, the more important thing here, which again, Another really fascinating conversation we had was with Steve Martin and Joe Marks, who wrote one of our top 10 books of the year. Uh, it was uh, Messengers. The, the messenger is the message. And we talked to them about how the messenger is just as or sometimes even more important than the content of the message which I find really disheartening, but they were able to bring in some really interesting uh, aspects of this. And it really helped me understand a lot of what happened uh, in 2020. So let's listen to what they said. And and uh, and Steve and Joe's remarks come uh, from episode 110. And we're going to hear about him talk about being trustworthy versus being truthful. This is Joe Marks. It's one of these questions that seems to be puzzling society at the moment, academics and then you know, political commentators are, are baffled and, and trying to put together some explanation. And the truth of it is, is that trustworthiness is really a prediction of somebody's future good faith. It's not this kind of complex weighting of evidence that uh, we, we use to, uh, to, to assess trust uh, truthfulness. You know, we're not kind of going to the bottom line of everyone's detailed sentences and trying to work out, well, does the evidence suggest that this is likely to be 40% false or, you know, 30% yeah. true. What is that computation? They're not doing that. We're relying on much more simple heuristics when assessing trustworthiness because it's this kind of intuitive, vague, abstract judgment that people are very good at making and have to make on very limited information very quickly. So the big takeaway from Joe's remarks is that trustworthiness is really important. And I can convince you that you can trust me and that uh, by doing a, a few certain things uh, and that in you as the eye of the beholder get to decide whether or not I'm trustworthy, really kind of whether or not I'm truthful or not. And I think that this is a fascinating juxtaposition that truthfulness and trustworthiness are not connected. And, and, right. and as, as far as I'm concerned, it's actually kind of sad in our world. It, it is really sad. And, and the contrary idea to this is that if being trust trusting is is good thing, being untrustworthy is bad. And if you can paint the other as untrustworthy, uh, then yeah. you win. And, and so this ties into a lot of what we're seeing in today's world, particularly when you think about politics, but even just this idea that the you know media is untrustworthy, fake news and 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 getting that idea to germinate and to blossom really helps create this, hey, the only messenger that you can listen to is me. And so it really kind of doubles down on a lot of this. And so again, it's a sad state, but it is the, the state that we're in. And it's better to understand that, I think, which I think Steve and Mark or Joe did uh, and, and are, are fascinating there. Now we get to turn over to a couple of uh, really fantastic conversations we had that are slightly unrelated to trust and trustworthiness, but more about priming. And uh, this was the show that we had with John Barge. It was episode 155. And as any listener knows, Kurt has been fascinated with priming <laughs> for years, right? I mean, 
Dr. Guilty, guilty, guilty as, 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 you know, said. Yeah. And our, our conversation with John did absolutely did not disappoint. It was maybe one of the most interesting parts of the conversation that we were exploring when John started to share about drinking coffee and how that bridged to neuroscience and beyond and behavior. So let's listen to what he had to say. John Barge was episode 155. That happens to all of us. And I had always welcome people in my office with, and, and lots of us do, right? Uh, offering them coffee. Um, I love coffee. I like making coffee. I like smelling coffee. Um, and I always offer, offer them coffee. And I, you know, this is maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's associated with hospitality and warmth and all that. Um, but it's just, and then Dante and the whole thing all fit together. It's like, oh my God, you know, uh, this is something very basic and it leads to something really cool with this whole bonding of infants and their parents. And then it leads to this thing with neuroscience discovers it hardwired in the middle of your head. I mean, it, that just led one thing led to another. And this little coffee study became this, this incredible story. Now there's a group we're not working on this as hard as we should, but there's a group of us working on a paper about warmth effects. And uh, there are there are incredible people in medical research um, showing that uh, you can actually relieve symptoms of clinically hospitalized, depressed people. It, they're so depressed they're in the hospital for it. And their symptoms are dramatically reduced by a heat lamp treatment. And the heat lamp is like for a, an hour or so, uh, a, full, a whole body. And then for, for two, at least two or three weeks later, their symptomatology is, is decreased from a 30 score to a 20 score on the scale of, of a depressive symptomatology. And, and now they're finding that if you trace the chemicals that happen in your brain when you, when you touch something warm, and they trace it all the way through your arms and nervous system to your brain, and there are brain chemicals that are released. Uh, the pathways that are activated by the experience of physical warmth are the same ones that antidepressant medications activate. So I think the big takeaway from this is, is not just that John drinks coffee all the time with his <laughs> with people in his in his office, but that he took this idea of coffee and was just curious about it. And that he's constantly thinking about things and 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 those curi that curiosity that he has is really what's driving a lot of the research that he does and a lot of the insights that then come from that. And I think it is a wonderful idea to be curious. And if we can all increase our curiosity level, right, just ratchet it up ratcheted up a lot. Um, I think we can really take this, uh, get into the next level, um, both in our personal and our work lives. And if we don't just take drinking coffee as a normal everyday thing, but what's behind why we do this? And is there something else behind this? I think is really, really cool. And I, I would also add that awareness is part of that. Uh, John didn't speak to this directly because so much of what we talked about was unconsciousness, right? But we can live a better life by increasing our awareness, being more intentional. And uh, and I think that that's fantastic. And curiosity is something that can be intentional. And that actually leads us to one of our most fascinating speakers and, and guests was Kwame Christian when he talked about compassionate curiosity, Right, that was a fantastic way of of thinking about how can we interact with other people 
through compassionate curiosity. And so in, in episode number 178, we talked to him. Yeah. So one of the things we have to do, um, I guess we would say that it requires a, um, a an approach that avoids overthinking, but at the same okay. time requires some deeper thinking. <laughs> so let's, let's get into that. So when we think about avoiding overthinking, the compassionate curiosity framework works the same way. The psychology okay. is the same. The emotions are just deeper. They're just stronger, right? So if you're talking to somebody who's very, very upset about the, the situation that we're experiencing here, you could, again, acknowledge and validate emotions. So when we're acknowledging using psychological terms, this is affect labeling. So mm -hmm. we're labeling the emotions. It's been seen for years in numerous studies that that helps people calm down. And the reason is because once you label that emotion, it triggers the uh, ventral medial prefrontal cortex to either determine whether or not we are accepting or rejecting that label. So again, the idea that we don't need to approach conflict or negotiations with a win-lose mentality, that if we approach it from a compassionate curiosity viewpoint, that can make the difference in how we interact with others. And this idea that, hey, the way that our brain processes this information is very different when we approach something in a curiosity perspective when you're asking somebody trying to figure out why they're why they think the way they do as opposed to uh, approaching them as you are the evil opposite side yeah, their yeah. defenses go up as opposed to trying to understand them and again it goes back to curiosity how curious are you and and I love the way that we that Kwame brings in this aspect of compassion right it's it's not understanding just to understand it's understanding to really have some compassion for why they think they the way they do and if you think about that from a negotiation perspective if you can understand why they're wanting what they want then you're going to be much better with that so absolutely and i think it's appropriate that we wrap up our retrospective of 2020 with our first guest of the year, the always <laughs> memorable and insightful Rory Sutherland. And not only did his book make our top 10 books of the year, yes, but did. he started our year off with a bang. And this was before COVID hit and the pandemic was on nobody's minds. I mean, it was an entirely different world that we were living in. So if yeah. you go back and listen to this episode, which was episode 107, remember that this was a world that we do not live in any any longer. We live in a, a whole different world wow. of how wow. we do this. Yeah. But yet, yet, the insights that Rory brings are just fantastic. And it ties back into some of the curiosity pieces that we were just talking about. But let's listen to Rory as he uses a great piece of literature to make a point. There are also decisions which are a bit like Sherlock Holmes's dogs that don't bark in the night. Yeah. In, the, in the Silver Blaze, it's a glorious thing. Uh, Holmes spots the fact that the crime was probably an inside job because there was a dog at the stables, but it didn't bark. Now, asking why did the dog bark? Oh, look, the dog barked. Therefore, it was probably a stranger. That's, you know, that's a reasonable thing to do. But a lot of people could do that. Spotting the fact that the, the absence of evidence, if you like, 
Spotting something that isn't there requires a lot more effort and a lot more kind of, uh, you know, cognitive investment, I think. You know, it's the re- real example of Holmes's genius in a sense. So the big, big thing that we walk away with when listening to Rory is about being curious. I mean, his brain works way different than most people's. But what we can take away from it is to pay attention, to be aware, and to be curious, right? Think differently. Notice the things that others don't notice. Like just just by paying attention, we all have the ability to notice the world around us. And and I think that this is at the heart of good behavioral science, noticing, right? How many, how many researchers have we talked to, Kurt, that said, well, I do my work primarily to solve my own issues. Yeah. I, this is a super common thing. So this is a, a great way that you can bring behavioral science into your life is just to pay more attention. And that applies both to people who are doing research as well as everybody who is trying to just go through their life and live their, you know, the best life possible. If you're curious about that and you are aware and you notice those things that happen, but also those things that don't happen, like the dog not barking in the night. Yes. That's when you can start separating yourself from the pack and really getting deep insights into why we do what we do, which is really what we have been trying to achieve with this podcast is to help people understand and be able to live their life a little bit more in the light as opposed to being in the dark. So that wraps up our retrospective from our 2020 non-COVID series and, (laughs) and what we thought about some of the most thought-provoking ideas that we had this past year. And we will be doing another retrospective on our COVID series. So look forward to that. And that will be about those insights that we gained from our over 30 interviews with behavioral experts on how we responded to this unprecedented pandemic. (laughs) I'm getting ready to go boxing here. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed this discussion. And if you did, please scroll down to the bottom of your listening app and give us a quick five-star rating or even leave us a super speedy review. Thank you so much for listening, Groovers. And we hope that this week you go out and find your groove. Mm -hmm.